0: Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John, And I'm
1: Andy. And this is the second episode of our Njal Saga Summer Spectacular.
0: Uh, You know, the more we dig into this saga, the more I wonder whether we should really be calling it this... Call it what? What do you mean? The Summer Spectacular or Uh, Summer Saga or whatever. How are we going to get through all this by the end of summer? I've still got a lot to say about what we covered in the first part of Njal Saga. Are we really moving on? sadly, yeah, we are. But, you know, that's the nature of the business we're
1: in. Things uh-huh. are going to get left out. But uh, we're happy to continue the conversation on Facebook or Twitter with anyone who's interested. Uh, unless, of course, John, you you maybe want to expand our discussion
0: and then double the number of episodes we've got planned for Njal Saga. Uh-huh. Hmm? Uh, well, as we were saying, this is the second episode. Uh-huh. Uh, and unlike last time, we're actually going to get to talk about Nyal and his friend Gunnar today. And not just them. Uh, has got a wife who's
1: every bit as formidable as he is. And, mm. and we've also got a litter of sons who are going to be taking center stage in future episodes.
0: True. Hang on, hang on. You're jumping ahead a bit. Uh, nah. first of all, we should briefly explain how we got to this point.
1: Yeah, we're, we're going to need to provide some background as we charge on through the saga. Um, as we go forward, I think these intros may start to feel a bit repetitive by the time we get to episode five or six or
0: uh, uh, seven or eight. <laughs>
1: Right. Uh, But, you know, we want to make sure that everyone's up to speed. Uh, That said, if you haven't listened to part one of Nial Saga yet, you should probably go do that. So uh, we'll wait here for you.
0: We aren't actually going to wait, right? No,
1: but it it seemed like we were going with a bit there. So Okay. Okay. All those people are gone. uh, So let's get started.
0: All right. So here goes. Last time on... Nyarl Saga! In our last episode, we met two half-brothers, a bachelor named Hrut, and a father of four named Huskull. Hrut became engaged to Un, the daughter of a prominent lawyer named Mor the Fiddle. But before he could marry her, Hrutt was called away to Norway to pursue an inheritance. In Norway, Hurt ended up becoming the boy toy of Gunnhild, Norwegian
1: queen mother. She helped him to a place of honor in her son's court, and sponsored his quest to track down the man who'd stolen his inheritance. But Gunnild proved to be a jealous lover, and didn't like Hrutt lying about having a fiancé
0: back home. Hrutt eventually returned to Iceland and married on. But due to a curse placed on him by Gunnild, Hrutt's manhead. But due to a curse placed on him by Guild, Hrt's manhood swelled to unmanageable proportions whenever he and Un tried to consummate their marriage. That's
1: such a weird curse. It really is. <laughs> After some years of unhappiness, Un convinces her father to help her divorce Hrt. Hrt refuses to return the dowry, though, and challenges the elderly Mord to a duel over the matter. Mord has to back down, leaving some ill will between the divorced couple.
0: Meanwhile, Hoskell's daughter Hogarth, a beautiful but difficult woman, marries twice. In both cases, her husbands eventually strike her in anger and are killed for it by Holgerth's foster father, Thjostolf. But Holgerth actually liked her second husband, and so she sends Thjostolf to her uncle Ruth, who cuts him down to avenge Holgerth's husband. (laughs) <laughs> now for for those of
1: you who can't see us, John started touching his ear like a radio broadcaster while doing that, so then That's i started... My, it's my
0: professional training in uh, in broadcasting yeah and
1: then, and then I started doing it for some reason we were going back and forth <laughs> It's very strange anyway so we're we're back up to speed and there there's obviously a lot more going on than that, but uh yeah, I should hope so. The first episode was ninety minutes long somehow, yeah, somehow it was ninety minutes long but uh we're we're up to speed so let's uh so what's in store this time around? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Let's hit this little button here.
2: Boom! There was a man named Gunnar, the saga tells us. He was the most daring, most agile, most handsome of all Icelanders. This second episode of our summer saga begins with the story of this awe-inspiring hero and his friendship with Njoln. A man whose wisdom is equal to Gunnar's physical prowess. We will follow Gunnar as he attempts to recover Un's dowry from Brut. With a cunning plan devised by his friend Njal, Gunnar might just have what it takes to outsmart Brut once and for all. But when things settle down, Gunnar hears the call of the sea, but it isn't long before he's off to make a name for himself by raiding throughout Scandinavia. Here we'll see Gunnar at his best, with a sword in hand and battle raging around him. Like every Icelander who sets sail for fame, glory, and wealth, Gunnar will soon feel the tug of home on his heartstrings. Once back in Iceland, Gunnar will meet the long-legged and stunning Hallgard. Despite her history and explicit warnings about her, Gunnars captivated by her beauty and charm. This union will set the action of the saga in motion, as Hallgard's feud with Njall's wife, Bergthora, will raise tensions throughout the region claim the lives of more than a few men. As animosity spreads like wildfire, this friendship of Gunnar and Njal will be tested time and again. Do they have the moral fortitude to maintain their composure and preserve their friendship in the face of increasing hostilities, or will the effects of Holger and Bergthor's feud consume them? Find out as Sagathing takes on part two of Jarl's Saga, chapters 18 to 45.
0: As that description suggests, this section of the saga is going to see a continuation of a theme we noticed last time. Is that right? Ah, yes. Our inability to stay on topic. No. Although that's a fair point. The (laughs) remarkable degree to which the women of this saga control the action. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, uh, that is something of a theme for this saga, but especially in the early going, we see a lot of it. Yeah, it's definitely one of the recurring points made about the saga as well. If you've read Nyal for a class or skimmed a bit of the recent scholarly commentary on it... Chances are you've come across this focus on the narrative importance of women. It's pretty hard to read this saga without getting sucked into that gender question. Women in the
1: sagas, and not only those at the top level of society, clearly exercise considerable rights and privileges, and their advice, good or bad, did carry weight in the men's world.
0: That sounds right, but I I like that you emphasize this is primarily a literary matter.
1: Well, if you notice the change in tone of my voice there, uh, it was Jenny Jockins who was speaking. Um, Ah, not I thought me. it sounded articulate and well thought through. <laughs> but, you know, it's true. She, she's also very careful to place the articulation of women's power into literature alone. Mm. She goes on to kind of qualify all of this. Uh, she says, the domineering Icelandic heroine of the family sagas bears little resemblance to historical reality and should be consigned to the realm of male fiction, hmm. which
0: I think is really interesting. I'm not yeah, yeah. sure how well, I feel about that. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be saving the historical question for a different episode, but the point about potential conflict between male and female behavioral parameters, it comes up quite a bit among people reading this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather O'Donoghue has a lot to say about the complexities of gender dynamism in this saga, for example, and her essay, Women in you Saga, is a great starting point for anybody interested in the topic. Yes, that, that's an important point.
1: Uh, gender, sexual identity, sex characteristics, all those things are, are somewhat malleable in this saga, I guess. And, and some scholars have made the point that male sexual identity is particularly seen as under threat in you saga. But, uh, we, you know, we shouldn't limit ourselves or this discussion just to a gendered reading of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more to this saga than just the power of women or men to control their
0: destinies. Sure. Uh, for one thing, we can broaden this to include sexual themes in general hmm Ursula Dronko, who we mentioned in the last episode, has argued that the author of Nihal's Saga finds sexual social cultural markers tremendously important. Not just the dynamics of gendered power, but what she calls an insistent continuum of sexual matters, experiences, emotions, and attitudes.
1: So these gender and sexuality issues are going to be a part of the story we're telling today, and mm-hmm. they're going to crop up again in a slightly different form in our next episode.
0: Right, and we'll put a short list of recommended readings, kind of loosely themed around gender studies, yeah. onto the blog site to accompany this episode. Yeah, one of us will, but uh, <laughs> but you know, gender's not even the entire
1: story of this part of the saga. We've got Viking raids, we've got slander, fighting, murder, revenge, true love, <laughs>
0: <laughs> all in one episode. Yes, uh, that's enough preamble. Then uh, let's get on with meeting our main protagonists. Part five: Gunnar and Yal, an Icelandic romance. So
1: we left off last time with Hrutt Herrierson's ex-wife, Un daughter in dire financial straits.
0: Right, but she, st- she thinks she still has a case against her ex-husband over that lost dowry. And so she turns to her cousin Ronvig's son, Gunnar Hamundersen, for help. Mm-hmm. And Gunnar, in turn, is going to seek help from his friend, Njal Thorgerson. Whoa, 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 hang on now. You can't just drop what? those two into
1: the mix and run into the narrative like that. Well, I can't help it. This is where we are. It's time. The moments are on. No, I know that, but we've got to introduce these boys. Okay, so introduce. You take Gunnar. I'll, will cover you all. All right. Gunnar Hamundersen is pretty easy to describe, actually. I mean, just mm-hmm. imagine every admirable and praiseworthy physical attribute that you'd hope to find in okay. an Icelandic man of the 10th century. Double or triple that, and, and then you've got Gunnar. <laughs> It's actually not too far wrong. Yeah, the author's introduction of Gunnar takes up an entire chapter of the saga, and and I'm just going to read you a part of it. This is just a snippet of the information. (laughs) Gunnar was a big and strong and excellent fighter. He could swing a sword and throw a spear with either hand, and he was so swift with that sword that there seemed to be three in the air at once. He shot a bow better than anyone else and always hit what he aimed at. He could jump higher than his own height in full fighting gear and as far backwards as forwards. He swam like a seal, and there's no sport in which there was any point in competing with him. It was said that no man was his match. Well, I mean, at that point, that last part goes without saying. Yeah, it kind of does. So oh, what we've got here, John, is a, is a Icelandic superhero. He's a, a saga Superman.
0: And what we have here is an over-enthusiastic author. Oh,
1: and uh, Gunnar is also handsome. Did we mention he was handsome? <laughs> He's fair-skinned with a straight nose, blue-eyed and ruddy-cheeked. He has full blonde hair, which is very, very well-combed. Okay, so he's handsome. Yeah.
0: But now he's kind of starting to sound like a Ken doll.
1: Oh, is is a Ken doll really your ideal for uh, handsomeness there, John? (laughs) Well, (laughs) blonde, blue-eyed, straight-nosed. Yeah, well, (laughs) he's also a well-mannered, generous, and even-tempered fellow, and he's a good-hearted person and a true friend to all. Aw. What you're saying is that he's Captain America, but in Iceland. Yeah, well, that's Yeah, exactly what he is. He's right on the edge of being too good
0: to be true, but, but that's kind of the point. No, I think it is. Uh, Gunnar represents the beauty of physical perfection, but I think right from the outset we're being invited to consider that that's an inherently tragic thing. Mm-hmm. There's something like that classic sense of tragedy in the fragility of Gunnar's perfection. And a perfection like that just needs to be tested. Sure. And the mere existence of someone that perfect forces us to confront the mortality of man. Mm. Right. Gunnar is at the pinnacle of medieval Scandinavian manhood, but he can't last forever and he can't be replaced. Hang on now. We're just introducing him. Let's not uh, kill him off just yet, John. Give him some time. Fair,
1: fair enough. Fair enough. Sorry. Go on. So Gunnar's also a well-connected man. He's the great nephew of Raven Hengson, the second law speaker of Iceland. Uh, he's got two brothers who play a role in the saga. There's the strong and reliable Kolskeg and a promising younger lad named Hjort. Gunnar's also the nephew of the Sigfusons, a group of seven accomplished men who are going to be important later on in the saga. So there's no flaw anywhere in Gunnar. Well, there's just one flaw. He might not mm-hmm. be the uh, sharpest knife in the drawer, as they say. Ah, well, at least he's pretty. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that he's stupid. I, I, maybe I mm-hmm. chose my words wrong there. Uh, but despite coming from a family that's already produced one law speaker, Gunnar's kind of ignorant about the law, admitted, and he admits that himself. Um he tells Oon mm-hmm. that when he when she comes asking for help. But uh he does have a friend who's known for his remarkable legal mind. He's the brilliant Njal Thorgerson.
0: Right. Okay, so about Njal. Uh Njal's the son of Thorger Golnir and a Norwegian emigrant named Asgard Oskel's daughter. Uh Njal is good looking and owns a great deal of property, and his knowledge and wisdom are as impressive in their way as Gunnar's physical superiority is in his. mm mm-hmm. We're told Nyal was so well-versed in law that he had no equal. He was wise and prophetic, sound of advice and well-intentioned. Whatever he counseled turned out well. He was modest, noble-spirited, and could see far into the future and remember far into the past. He solved the problems of whoever turned to him. Yeah, it's interesting
1: that Njal's ability to see into the future is mentioned right away here. As we mentioned last time, great lawyers are sometimes credited with this almost precognitive ability to predict events.
0: Sure, yeah. Uh, and since the author is setting Njall up as the intellectual giant to match Gunnar's physical skills, it stands to reason that Njall would have that ability to a remarkable degree.
1: Yeah. So to uh, continue our comic book references, a, a like a young Charles Xavier, otherwise known as Professor X.
0: <laughs> More or less. Okay. Uh, so what we have here in this formidable combination is the best ten- mind 10th century Iceland can produce, partnered up with the best physical specimen of the era. Yeah. Gunnar and Njal are an impressive team. Yeah, but you've uh, skipped an important point about Njal. Oh, I haven't skipped it. I'm just biding my time. Uh, The author also tells us that Njal was handsome to look at, but there was one thing about him. No beard grew on
1: him. Yeah, we we keep saying that saga authors generally prefer minimalist writing, and and that is a great example. There's no hint about Mm. why Njal's beardlessness matters. Certainly, it, it's unusual for a grown man to be beardless in this culture and historical moment, but it's just mentioned
0: in this one line, almost like a throwaway observation. Mm-hmm. Right. And among other things, it's a classic example of Chekhov's gun. Mm. Uh, Njal's smooth face is going to come up again in our story, and it's going to be important. <laughs> right. But here, it's introduced casually, and we move right on to Njal's family. Yeah. Uh, but I think we'll save them for a moment and deal with Un's lawsuit first. Oh, right, that, what we started with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, um, and it's not going to be the best introduction to Gunnar, honestly. I don't know about that. It's kind of interesting. I do.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> Gunnar asks Njal's advice on the lawsuit, and Njal replies with an unnecessarily complicated monster of a plan that takes an entire chapter of the saga to explain. And the whole thing appears totally unnecessary. No, it's not unnecessary, but it, it is very involved,
1: so I can see why you might say that. And it's going to prove incredibly time-consuming for Gunnar if he wants to uh, achieve his goal. Essentially, Niall is going to narrate what's going to happen before it happens. Do this, do mm-hmm. that, um, and he'll say this, and and then you'll say that. Um, it, it see it might seem as you read it like an odd way to tell a story, but it's actually quite clever. Uh, I think we see this kind of narrative technique in movies sometimes, especially where a group is planning some scheme or preparing to infiltrate an enemy base. Uh, the group will sit around and plan. Then as they talk, we'll see the plan play out or the preparations for the plan play out, perhaps. Uh, but, but I can't mm-hmm. for the life of me, off the top of my
0: head, think of a specific example of this actually happening. Can you? Well, I think, I think most of the time when we see this, we aren't told the plan the first time around, right? We get that classic, here's the plan, boys. <laughs> yeah, but that's in like classic movies. And then I think we've developed right, beyond right. that. No, but I think we, I know the kind of thing you mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, this reminds me more of the Oceans 11 thing, where we get the detailed plan, and then we see the plan enacted. Except that here, everything works exactly the way Nial plans it, and so there's really no need to actually watch it happen. Mm. Yeah,
1: exactly. That kind of thing. And I, I think, uh, um, Ant-Man has a little bit of this kind of thing where they're talking about a, oh, yeah. a plan that's going to happen. And then we see the plan kind mm-hmm. of taking shape as, uh, as they're describing what's going to happen. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that yet. Well, rest assured, it does happen in some movies. And if you can think of an example okay. of what we're talking about or if you're even following what we're talking about, uh, <laughs> contact <laughs> us with, uh, with some info, will you? So, uh, what does Nyal tell Gunnar to do? Well, briefly, Gunnar has to dress as a peddler take an assumed name, and then spend time building up a reputation as being a bad-tempered, nasty jerk who cheats people with shoddy merchandise.
0: Right. So already Gunnar's wasting his time running all over the place in a goofy costume. Yes. And uh, then
1: he has to show up at Hurt's Farm and spend some time gossiping maliciously about people in other districts around Iceland. Uh-huh. So now he's slandering people for no reason. All part of the plan. And then mm-hmm. Gunnar has to uh, bring the conversation around to the old lawsuit over Un's dowry and get Hroth to teach him the f- specific, very specific phrasing for restarting the suit at a different thing. Then Gunnar has to repeat the summons in Hroth's presence, get him to agree that it was done correctly, then mutter under his breath that the summons is real and in earnest, and then escape the farm that night, all before Hroth can oh, figure it out. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, and he also has to bring two men with him through the whole ordeal to witness everything. But why? Why? Why what? Why do any of this? So he can deliver the summons to Hrut, that's all. But
0: Njal knows the phrasing for reissuing the summons. (laughs) Yes, he does. And Gunnar is Gunnar. He's not going to be in any physical danger if he just rides up to Hrut in a field and issues the summons in his face. Mm. So what's the point of the elaborate scheme? Well, uh, Njal is playing
1: it safe, let's just say. This way, there are witnesses on both sides, and since Hrut speaks the summons himself, he can't claim later on that it was done improperly. Well,
0: or, <laughs> Niall's just goofing on Gunnar and <laughs> thinks it's funny to make him dress up and sneak around. Also possible, but I don't think so. <laughs> well, I, there is a third option, I admit. Oh, I was hoping you knew that there was. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, we mentioned earlier that Niall has the ability to see the future in a limited way. Mm-hmm. And he makes clear to Gunnar that his advice is because he's had one of his visions of the future. This was pretty specific. He says, <laughs> you know? yeah, no, it is. He says, I'm proposing what seems to me the most promising plan, and it will work if you don't deviate from it. But your life will be in danger if you do. You know, I I actually like that voice for Neil. I'll accept that. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, the
1: first time you ever proved to a voice. Yeah, it worked for me. So the the point here is that Njal has seen something in Gunnar's future that is potentially fatal to him. And all this silliness is a way of avoiding
0: whatever it is that Njal has seen. Right. Honestly, that's almost certainly what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not told what Njal's afraid of, but this is exactly why Gunnar went to him for advice in the first place. As much as it irritates me, it's probably just prudence on Njal's part. Yeah. And, well,
1: even if it's a ludicrous plan, it works. Gunnar mm-hmm. repeats the summons formula, and Hrutt has to face the reopening of the lawsuit. Right, so there's that. Exactly. But it's not as simple as all that. Hrutt's been getting some good advice of his own, and when the time comes for the case to be heard at the All Thing, Gunnar does all the work of presenting his case, and then it's hurt's turn to respond.
0: And Hurt goes big right away. Uh, he declares Gunnar's case invalid because three legal statements that Gunnar should have been made weren't presented before the assembly
1: Ah, technicalities Yeah, this is really the Mm -hmm. first time we see an actual case go forward in this saga and it's a little taste of what's to come the machinations of both sides in the legal cases are really exciting if you like that kind of thing um Mm -hmm. you know if you're (laughs) one of us right
0: uh and there are some great cases coming up later in the saga Mm -hmm. but right now we should be clear that this isn't nal's fault no he's not gunnar's lawyer in the case and he doesn't arrive at the court until after Gunnar's prosecution has already been conducted. And besides, you know, this isn't fatal to Gunnar's
1: case if he wants. Um, attempts to mm-hmm. invalidate a case for procedural errors are pretty common, even in modern law. And a lawyer of Njal's caliber knows exactly how to recover the situation. Right. And he
0: offers to do just that. But Gunnar's lost patience for all this legal mumbo jumbo. And now it's time for us to see a bit of what Gunnar brings to the partnership. He brings the beatings, John. Gunnar <laughs> brings the pain. He does indeed. Yeah. Uh, and
1: in order to do that, Gunnar challenges Hroth to a duel, just as Hroth once challenged mm-hmm. Un's father,
0: Morth Fiddle. But this isn't the same situation exactly. Uh, Morth was an old man and a lawyer, not a warrior. Hroth's a bit past his prime, maybe, but he's still a fighting man, and his reputation is largely built on his exploits with a sword, mm-hmm. not with legal procedures. All true. That's all true. So he agrees to the challenge gladly. Yeah,
1: no, not exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> he consults with his brother and their followers. It's never happened before that a man has challenged me to a duel and I refused. And his brother
0: Hoskull responds, You must be planning to fight, but not if I have any say. For you won't do any better against Gunnar than Morth would have done against you.
1: There's that gravelly voice. I figured it would come out eventually. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's that's pretty harsh. Well, it's probably true. No, I, I mean, I get that, but that doesn't make it easy for Hoot to hear. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, there's a little bad blood there, at least for a (laughs) while. But Hrut knows he's stuck. He is. And it has to be said, there's a bit of poetic justice to his situation. He and Haskell pay the money to Gunnar, who passes it on to Un. But they don't pay the money without getting in a dig at Gunnar. As they hand Mm -hmm. over this money, Hrut says, Bad things will be your only reward for this. Mm. And he's not wrong. Uh, But for now, Gunnar and Njal have their first victory, and it seems like their stars are on the rise. Excellent. Part 6. Four Weddings and a Fosterage.
1: What follows in the saga is a handful of chapters in which a flurry of marriage arrangements and weddings take place. Uh, because of the nature of the sagas, you can be pretty sure they're all important later on, at least the relationship that result from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, uh, the problem is that you'd be wrong.
0: <laughs> Only <laughs> some of them are important later. Right. Well, all of them have some significance, but... Rather than walk through this section of the saga, we're just going to talk about each marriage and the important people involved. So let's skip over the details of the marriages, though. Uh, I, I don't think we've got room
1: or inclination to spend 15 minutes talking about all the festivities at different weddings uh, in all in a row. Yeah, it's probably it's reasonable.
0: reasonable. Uh, but since most of the weddings involve yeah. Njal's sons, we should probably start with Njal and his wife, Bergthora. Ah, Bergthora.
1: Yes, uh, although I think the more interesting pairing here is Bergthora and Holgerth, uh, but we're going to get into that
0: in a little while. At the outset, all we're told about Bergthora is her ancestry and that she is a woman with a mind of her own and a fine mm-hmm. person, but a bit harsh-tempered. That's not a tremendous amount to go on, so we're going to have to fill in a little bit here. Well, as, the, as was the case with Holgerth, uh, scholars tend to attach descriptors to Bergthora. Yeah. She's described as unyielding, brusque, morally rigorous, stern-minded, belligerent, <laughs> intelligent, but merciless. A prima donna of the frig type. Interesting. And harsh but eventually gentle, which (laughs) I have to say sounds more like a quality dish soap than a person to me. (laughs) Uh,
1: Something that's immediately obvious from that list, apart from the dish soap, is what we said about Hogarth last time, that these are mostly qualities that would be perceived as neutral or even positive in a male figure, but not
0: not Uh, here.
1: Right. I'm I'm not sure that we should assume they're negative here either. No, I, I don't think they're inherently negative, though they. I think they sometimes sound that way. I mean, Brusque, mm. unyielding, mm-hmm. um, intelligent but merciless, you know? Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't think you can argue that Bergthor or, or
0: Holgerth are, are meant to be read
1: positively if you read this. No, story. I just
0: mean that there might not be a clear gender binary distinction in this saga between the characteristics of men and women. Hmm. Among other things, you made the point last time that Holgerth is physically pretty conventionally a literary beauty. Yeah, she she's noted for her fine features, long legs, long hair, all that kind of stuff, and thief size, of course. Oh yes, well you can't forget the thief size. Now, Bergthora, on the other hand, is never described as conforming to a standard of feminine beauty. It's it's quite the opposite, in fact. She's mm. going to be mocked for her looks a little bit later. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And the author calls her Dregurgotra. Uh which might be read as a fine person, hmm. or a courageous person, or a person of manly quality. Uh, that last part's especially interesting. Mm-hmm. There's some internal support for understanding the term that way. The exact same phrase, Drengur godr, is used to describe Gunnar's brother Kolskegi in the previous chapter. Hmm. Now, I don't think that this is a simple matter of associating one figure in the saga with the opposite sex. I think this is part of a much broader scrambling of gender expectations throughout this saga. Well, I, I'm not sure I'd want to push that argument too far, though. Uh, but certainly there are some scholars who would support you. Well, either way, uh, Bergthor is another formidable woman. Definitely. A woman who will be a rival to Holgerth in the same way that the sagas frequently set up two chieftains or families as rival sides in a mm-hmm. feud. Which is really quite interesting. Uh,
1: we don't see that very often in the sagas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will be set up as a counterpoint to the friendship between Jal and Gunnar. Uh, but but we've got a while before we get to that part of the story. There's some things that need to I happen know, first. But it's so hard to resist looking ahead. I know. This is one of the most famous feuds in all the sagas. Mm-hmm. But okay. So now we called this section Four Weddings and a Fosterage. And we haven't actually talked about any of those yet, though we hinted at weddings.
0: Although those are easy. Uh Nal and Bergthora have three sons named Skarphaven, Grim, and Helgi. And two daughters named Thorgard and Helga. Now, there's a brief reference to a third daughter, but she's never mentioned again in
1: the saga, so it's possible there's either an error in the manuscript or that she's just not involved in the story and so not worth mentioning. Or she died before the story begins. It's entirely possible that a child could have
0: been lost. Yeah, well, there's there's a cheery thought. Thanks, John. Well, (laughs) so each of the sons gets married. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll introduce each son as he gets hitched. Andy, you want to start us off with Scar Oh, you know I do. Scarpathen is one of those (laughs) great characters in the sagas.
1: The author describes him as a big and strong man, accomplished in swimming, running, and fighting. He's even-tempered but sharp-tongued, and physically he's got reddish curly hair, pale skin, sharp features, a bent nose, a bit of an overbite, and an ugly mouth. That is quite a description. (laughs) As the saga goes on, we're going to see a lot more of Scarpathen. I mean, he's a fascinating collection of opposing characteristics and impulses, and his crooked smile is so significant in the story that there have been multiple articles written about Scarpathen's grin.
0: Now, the upshot is that Scarpathen is an unnerving character, uh, even for those who consider him an ally. Only his brothers and father seem to be able to tolerate his behavior calmly.
1: Uh, and Skarpaythan's marriage is an early example of his strange disconnectedness from the things that happen around him. When mm. Njal asks if he wants to get married, Skarpaythan just tells his father to see to it. And although he <laughs> marries Thorhild Robin's uh, from Thorofsfell, he continues to live at home, which is... Right. Odd. <laughs> uh, it's very un- uncharacteristic of a young man in
0: a saga. Yeah. Uh, now Njal's second son is Grim. Uh, he's a more conventional figure than his brothers. He's tall, dark-haired, and notably handsome. He's also strong for his size, and generally he's a solid guy to have around. And he also marries a
1: woman his father chooses for him. Mm-hmm. In this case, he marries a rich widow named Astrid of Juparbaki. Like Skarpathan, he continues to live at his parents' farm rather than on the farmland that he actually owns. It's a close-knit family. Yeah, yeah. or Bergthor and y'all are just waiting for these slacker kids to move out of the basement already. <laughs> hey, it's a tough economy out there. Uh, so what about the third son, Helgi? Okay, well, Helgi's a strong and even-tempered man. Not as big as his brothers, but possibly the best looking of the group. He's also
0: described as clever, which isn't a word used to describe his brothers. Yeah, and that clever is important. Uh, As we'll see later, Helgi has a bit of his father's ability to see things that others can't. Although his talents, I think, are a little different than his father's. Well, Njal sets up
1: Helgi with Thorhala Asgrim's daughter, whose father Asgrim mm-hmm. is a prominent man in the Tunga district. Like his brothers, Helgi's fine with his father playing matchmaker, and Njal and Asgrim are able to settle the marriage without any pesky involvement from either of their kids. Right? It's, it's, it's nice when nice. things go according to plan. Yeah, and, and there's a little bonus. At the wedding feast, Njall offers to foster Asgrim's son, Thorhal, which is always a good idea.
0: Yeah. Now, this ends up being a really important relationship later in the saga, mm-hmm. but it's another one of those slow-burning plot points that we keep seeing. For now, what's important is that thor comes to live with Njall for many years, grows to love him dearly, and trains with Njall to become a lawyer. Exactly.
1: And it's interesting. None of Njall's sons are interested in the law. I mean, as far as we know, not even the clever Helgi. It feels like a machination on Njal's part to arrange a marriage connecting him to Asgrim's family and then immediately offer to foster the son, this promising boy, and mentor him toward a career in law. You think Njal wants a protege? Well, what good man doesn't? And it does kind of (laughs) seem that way. In any case, Njal's flurry of activity has built him some fairly impressive family connections. Combined with his friendship with Gunnar,
0: Njal's really riding high at this moment. Maybe. Uh, Oh, we should mention that Njal has a fourth son, named Hoskold, uh, who he had out of wedlock with a woman named Rodney. (gasps) Yes. There's no real indication that the family resents young Hoskold, uh, not even Bergthor, really. Mm -hmm. And he lives at the farmstead as well, uh, or at least on and off he does. He'll be important later, but he's not involved with this cluster of weddings. Hang on a second. What? Four weddings. We said four. If Hoskold
1: snows not getting married, then... Who's the lucky couple?
0: I know you're just feeding me that as a segue, but I do appreciate it.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. And also, there are so many relationships being set up in these sections that uh, that I could actually use a reminder. So, Fair ahead. enough. I'm actually following my notes here
0: myself. Uh, <laughs> we've been saving the worst for last. Oh, uh, now I remember. We're going to talk about Un. That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. Gunnar's mom's cousin Un uses that regained dowry to attract the attention of an unpopular but well-connected man named Volgar the Grey. The gray as a nickname generally doesn't signify anything good about a person if you know your nicknames. Uh, And the marriage produces a single son, which I suppose is technically possible but still kind of remarkable. (laughs) Why? Why do you say that? Well, I mean, consider the time frame. We saw last time that Un is married to Hroth three years after the originally stipulated date for their wedding. Uh Uh-huh. And then she's married to Hroth for about three more years, so. Right. So she's close to or in her 20s by this point, assuming she wasn't being married off before she turned 13. Okay, well, let's assume that. If only because this whole child bride thing is a little disturbing. So go ahead. Right. Well, then we have Holgerth's two marriages. The first one's short, but a significant amount of time passes before the second. Ah, and the second marriage produces a daughter,
1: Thorgerd Gloom's daughter. And we know from Mm -hmm. something that happens later that she's got to be, I don't know, how old by this point? I figure at least ten. Okay, this is John math now, so it's going to be pretty accurate. And sounds, <laughs> so she's ten or so, and it, mm-hmm. it's only
0: after Gloom's death that Un enlists Gunnar and Yall to help with her finances, right? Sure. And then Un marries Valgard, and then they have a son. Un's got to be at least in her late thirties by this point, possibly in her forties. Oh, she's an old maid. It's not unheard of, but it's certainly a respectable age for a woman in the tenth century to be having her first child. Well, that's not really her fault. She had a rough go of it. Well, and and unfortunately, her son
1: turns out to be a real creep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> His name is uh, Morth Valgarderson,
0: and mm-hmm. it's enough to make you wish she hadn't bothered. <laughs> yeah, uh, Morth's in the running for the most villainous figure in Yalsaga, saga, and that's not an easy contest to win. He's a
1: second cousin to Gunnar, even though they're a generation apart in age, and mm-hmm. all we learn about him for now is that he's devious by nature and malicious in counsel. Bad to his kinsmen and to Gunnar, worst of all. A little bit of foreshadowing there. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we're not going to be liking this guy.
0: No. Uh, and we're already starting to see the fulfillment
1: of that curse Hrutt leveled against Gunnar. True. And it's the money that Gunnar won from Hrutt that allowed Un to remarry after all. Mm-hmm. And now the product of that marriage is already being foretold to be the worst kinsman to Gunnar. But, okay,
0: that's four weddings. Are you and happy a
1: fosterage. Now? We had a foster a fosterage. There you go. All right. Happy? Good job. Just trying to keep you honest.
0: Part 7. Gunnar goes a Viking. So, a while after the various weddings of Njal's kids have taken place, Gunnar is invited to go abroad with Halvard the White. He decides to go, but of course checks in with Njal first to make sure it's a good idea.
1: Now, Njal's really about as close to an oracle as the sagas get. Mm -hmm. It's almost ridiculous. And in this case, he gives his blessing. And since Gunnar's brother Kolskegi is going with him, Njal agrees to help Gunnar's mom look after the the farm in his absence.
0: Right. Now, this really opens up a new cycle and a new story in the saga. We're now fully invested in Gunnar's story, even more so than Njal's. Exactly. And Gunnar and Kolskegi
1: are like Vikings in a candy store. They just can't wait to get started raiding and plundering. How is that like being in a candy store? Well, I just assumed that Vikings would have a field day in a candy store. Did Did you ever steal candy as a kid? Not Not from a longboat, no. <laughs> no, me, me neither. Anyways, so <laughs> when Halvard asks what the brothers want to do, Gunnar says, I'd like us to go raiding.
0: Let's find men to go with us. That's a pretty generic voice for Gunnar, I gotta say. I, well, you know, if he's the stock hero, uh-huh. you go with a stock Fair enough, voice. That's That's absolutely right. He's from Central Casting. Uh, well, I mean, you're right there's an innocent joy in all this. I mean, Gunnar comes across like a boy trying to find other kids to play stickball with. Well, fortunately, Halvard's got two longboats
1: for just such an occasion, mm-hmm. and he's also got a cousin, Olvir, with two more ships. So they've got a pretty substantial raiding crew together.
0: Right, and Halvard and the Humundersons turn out to be a very
1: successful raiding team. Yeah, they sort of specialize in attacking other Vikings, which is quite interesting. It sort of seems to be the author's way of keeping Gunnar on the windward side of any moral issues that might come
0: up. Windward? Oh, yes. It's a nautical term. When we're at sea, John. I know. I'm just surprised that an Ohioan knows his sea lingo. Will you be singing a <laughs> shanty from the poop deck later? No, if you're lucky, I will. <laughs> uh, but back to Gunnar's big adventure. Well... As we said, these guys like fighting other Vikings. Uh, their first major attack is against a small fleet led by brothers named Vondiel and Karl Snalfsen. Gunnar's ship gets stuck between two of the Snalfson ships right away, but the Snalfsons have made a terrible, terrible mistake. The first is being the Snalfsons. What a horrible name. <laughs> snalf, Snalf.
1: snalf, snalf. snalf. <laughs> They, they've, uh, speaking of which, uh, just uh, a little aside here, um, I, I managed to get my son into uh, the Thundercats. Did you really?
0: It took a little bit why, of effort. Why would you make that effort? I loved the Thundercats when Did I was growing you really? up. I know you're a little bit older than me. Yeah, I think I'm older. Old, oh, sufficiently older than you that this is not a, a thing that I yeah, was able to do. I, bu- I got my kids oh. into Scooby-Doo. Uh, I don't like Scooby-Doo. There you go. It's the same story every time. So I watched
1: Thunder Thundercats, which is...
2: Completely done. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't know, but uh, yeah, he liked it a lot, which I, I'm really happy. Um, although I watched it and I wasn't as impressed as I was when I was
0: young. So, well, yeah, no, that's 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 why nostalgia sucks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Keep moving forward, Andy. Keep moving forward. <laughs> Anywho,
1: the, the Snofsons have wandered into the saga, just as Gunnar and Kolskigi were
0: looking for someone to beat yeah, up. Pretty so much, it's quite yeah. Convenient. Uh, Gunnar is a one-man wrecking crew. Uh, He jumps into Vondil's ship, hacks away at his enemies, catches spears, and throws them back twice as hard. It's all pretty impressive stuff. It's worth reading. You've got to read Mm -hmm. this if you haven't read it.
1: Uh, But Kolskagin is just as impressive as Gunnar. He he flings an anchor at Karl's ship so hard that it crashes through the hull, wrecking the entire ship and forcing Karl's men to leap
0: onto other ships or to drown in the ocean. Uh, More ships crash in on both sides, and a full battle gets underway. There's a quick moment here that really gets me. Uh, after some fighting, Kolskegi takes a quick breather to drink a goblet of mead. And this is in the Gunnar. middle of the battle. Gunnar thinks this is hilarious and razzes him about it. You've served others better than yourself today by taking away their thirst. Which he means by killing them. Right. Uh, sorry, I got distracted by a fly that just flew into my eye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're no warrior. I am not. Oh, my eye! Call off the war! <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's not a great joke, but the point is that these two are clearly having the time of their lives. They're, no, they're no. out away from home, they're in their full strength, and they're cleaning up against a rival raiding party. Life at this moment is good for the Hermunderson brothers. They also
1: apparently have someone handing out goblets of mead in the middle of a fight, right. which is it suggests that they're maybe not taking
0: this as seriously <laughs> as they should, or the author's a little <laughs> bit ridiculous. Well, killing pirates is thirsty work. What's the point of having goblets and mead along if you can't enjoy them during a rousing brawl?
1: Well, you know, once uh, Kolskegi's finished chugging that mead down, uh, the brothers charge at the Snafflesons and defeat them in paired single combat, and they end the battle. It's impressive stuff. Nothing to worry about. And now that they're fairly rich from the spoils of war, they can, well... Actually they're they're having so much fun that they just go on raiding through the autumn, <laughs> make a winter camp and then go raiding again as soon as the spring thaws right. come. It's pretty impressive stuff. Now the
0: brothers have been working their way east this entire time, and by early summer they rest on an island called Ossel, uh modern day Sarma, uh, off the coast of Estonia.
1: Of course. And this is where they meet Tolfi. Yeah. yeah, do you want to explain this? Well, there's not much to explain, but yeah, I'll give my best shot at it. Uh, so Tolfi is a loner, and I, I really like Tolfi's character. Mm. He comes to Gunnar and tells him that there's a group of ships led by brothers named Hallgrim and Kolskegi on the other side of the island, and they're planning to attack Gunnar's ships. Well, that's succinct. I thought there'd be more, but okay. Well, what's more is that the that he was uh, abandoned there by other Vikings, mm. so I think that's worth noting. And, and there's more. Is there? The brothers have famous... <laughs> yeah, there is! The brothers have famous weapons. Halgrim fights with a halberd that's been charmed so that as long as Hallgrim wields it, no weapon except his own can kill him. Oh. And Kolskegi has a short sword of remarkable strength, which isn't as well, impressive, but... It's yeah, okay. that's not good. Uh, anything else? Well, they have about a third, again, as many men and ships as Gunnar's troop, and they're already on their way. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's really not good. Never fear, John. Gunnar, Kolskegi, Halvert, Olver, and their crews are ready for anything. hmm as it is, though, they're barely able to get armed and in their ships before the attacking ships come into the harbor. So it's pretty quick. Well,
0: thank God for Tofi the Snitch. Well, why wouldn't he? Uh, so this is another epic battle. Um, we'll skip to the fights between the sets of brothers, since that's really the main event. Okay. So I
1: I, I want to call uh, Gunnar versus Hallgrim my favorite. Knock yourself out. Okay. Actually, I, you know, I can't really top the saga itself for this. It's well written. <laughs> so I'm just... I'm going to read what it says, if you don't mind. So you called it just so you can read the saga, people. Ah, That's fair. Listen to this. Holgrim leaped onto Gunnar's ship, and Gunnar turned to face him. Holgrim thrust at once with his halberd. A boom lay across the ship, and Gunnar made a backwards leap over it. His shield was still in front of the boom, and Holgrim's halberd went through it and into the boom. Gunnar struck at Holgrim's arm, and the arm was broken, but the sword did not bite. Mm. The
0: halberd fell. Gunnar grabbed it and thrust it through a Wow. So we should explain that this halberd is Gunnar's signature weapon. And from now on, he's going to be using it whenever possible. Absolutely. We're going to get very familiar with this yep. thing. And in the meantime, Kolskegi has been hard-pressed fighting against, well, fighting against Kolskegi. Uh, it's, yeah, I know. It's not a terribly common name. It means blackbeard or coalbeard. I like to imagine the two of them sharing a wry shrug over their name before they start trying to kill each other. Well, they exchange names. <laughs> Hi, I'm
1: Kolskegi. <laughs> hey, Kolskegi. Nice Kolskegi. Uh, but the fact is that the Kolskegis are evenly matched, beards and all, and fighting <laughs> for their lives. Or they are, at least until Gunnar stabs the one who's not his brother.
0: Right. Holgrim's uh, men aren't excited about continuing the fight once their leaders are dead, so they give up. Uh, Mm -hmm. Gunnar allows him to leave, but Tolfi leads the Hamundersens to a cache of gold and plunder on the island where the Vikings had hidden it. This Tolfi is suspiciously helpful. I love this guy. Yeah, well, he's got a good reason. Um, As you said before, he's a slave captured from Denmark and brought here, and he wants a ride home. Which
1: is quite reasonable. Mm -hmm. I understand Tolfi's motivations. And this is one of those great little moments in the sagas that offer a glimpse of the wider world that these stories take place in. Um, This is a real guy. I mean, this kind of thing did happen. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of displaced people in these stories, many of whom were at some point captured and brought to a new land. Mm -hmm. Getting home again wasn't easy once you'd been press ganged
0: or forced into slavery. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, Aside from the logistics and expense of travel, there's also the problem of finding the actual route back by land if you've been transported by sea. And returning by sea is virtually impossible without the help of someone with a ship, knowledge of the area... And the inclination to help you. Yeah. So it's actually lucky for Tolfi that
1: Gunnar's crew came along. I mean, they're kind of part of the system that creates displaced
0: refugees and slaves. But in this particular case, they're a welcome sight to Tolfi. Yeah. So Tolfi's information has bought him a ticket home. And Gunnar and his crew, who now have 10 ships laden down with riches, spend some time visiting the Denmark court of King Harald Gormson for a while before returning to the sea. But they're not going far. Now
1: that he's had success sailing, Gunnar's ready to visit Norway, where he learns that Harald Greycloak and the Norwegian witch queen, Gunild, have both died. Good for him. And Norway is now
0: controlled by Earl Hauken Sigurdersson. Oh, he's a good one. Uh, Great grandson of Harald Fairhair. And he shows up in a number of Icelandic texts. But in this case, his
1: court is only a short stopover for Gunnar's crew. They spend Mm. one winter with the Earl before returning to Iceland, but Halkun is impressed with Gunnar and gives him a a gold arm ring before he
0: leaves. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at. Mm. An arm ring gift is a significant mark of esteem. Yes. And the Earl also gives them flour and timber before they go. And there's that timber
1: gift again. I mean, we've seen this Mm -hmm. in several of the Icelandic sagas by now. Saga authors don't shy
0: away from the struggle for lumber in Iceland. It's true. And it's probably the only thing Gunnar's ships hadn't already loaded up on. Mm-hmm. So he returns to Iceland with his ships presumably riding very low in the water, and everyone celebrates the brothers' successful return. Yeah, more or less. But uh, Gunnar's reunion with Njal pours a bit of cold water on Gunnar's high spirits. Yeah, uh, Njall's been seeing the future again. After Gunnar tells him about his adventures, Njal responds, You've been much tried, and will be tried much more, because many men will envy you. I want to get along with everyone. Much will happen, and you will often have to defend yourself. Then my grounds must be that my cause is right. It will be, as long as you do not have to pay for the doings of others. Ooh, that's ominous. Part 8. Halgirth's Third Marriage.
1: One of Gunnar's defining characteristics is that he's relatively modest for a saga figure relatively well you know i realize that's not saying much but he's not one to put on airs in fact no. his brother Kolskegi has to convince him to go to the all thing the year they return so that they can cash in socially on their newfound notoriety that's admirable well that's
0: true uh, but they both show up dressed to impress and gunnar's not too bashful to swan about the all thing wearing his high-end fashions given mm-hmm. to him by the danish king and flashing his arm ring from earl Halkin. I mean, he's modest, but he's not a shrinking violet. Well, you know, everyone is suitably impressed by his fancy duds.
1: And there's another person who's shown up at the All Thing that year dressed to the nines. It's our old friend,
0: Halgirth. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yes. She's dolled up like the femme fatale. An uh, ornamented red dress with a scarlet cape embroidered in lace. She's a regular Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, basically. A blonde Jessica Rabbit. Uh, And when Gunnar and Holgerth meet, they very much like the look of one another. Oh, well, that's not good, at least for Gunnar. (laughs) Uh, Well, the conversation goes very quickly, and within a little while, Gunnar is proposing marriage to Holgerth on the spot. She must be incredibly attractive.
1: Well, apparently. Um, Let's leave aside the speed of this courtship, which is slightly Mm. ridiculous, and I'm willing to ignore the danger inherent in marrying Holgerth, given the results of her first two marriages. But this really is an idealized view of marriage from a 13th century perspective. I mean, mm. Gunnar's proposal is made to Holgerth directly, without even a hint that her family should be consulted, though they should. That's, that's a problem, you're saying? Well, it's certainly a little unorthodox for the 10th century. So mm. much so that even Holgerth says, well, if that's on your mind, you must go to my father. But that presents its own problems. Well it does. I mean remember that this is the daughter of Hoskild and
0: the niece of Hrút. Right. The last time we saw them, Gunnar was publicly shaming Kroot over the dowry from the first marriage. Yes. The situation is a little strained. It is, but it gets even worse when Hrút and Hoskuld try to talk Gunnar out of
1: the marriage, which I mm-hmm. love this I love this whole sequence. <laughs> and it's not because they don't like him, but because right. as Hroot says Hulgurth is a mixed character, and I, I
0: don't want to deceive you in any way. Hardly <laughs> complimentary. No, he knows he, the story. Uh, He then launches into a long discourse about all the faults in Hulgurth's personality. Yeah. Uh, but when it becomes obvious that Gunnar doesn't intend to be talked out of it, they give in and the marriage goes forward.
1: yeah. yeah. I think it's fair to say that after having to pay off two angry and grieving families, the brothers are understandably a little nervous about agreeing to another marriage for his daughter. And when
0: Yal learns about the engagement, he's also worried. Every kind of evil will come from her when she moves here. But he agrees to support his friend and attend the wedding. And what
1: happens next is a pair of awkward situations at public gatherings that are going to have major, major consequences for the rest of the saga. And this is again the most famous sequence from any saga literature. Um, John, which one do you want to explain? Uh, why don't you start with the wedding? All right, so um so Gunnar and Holgarth's wedding happens as planned. Now, Gunnar's invited all of his uncles to the wedding.
0: right. we briefly mentioned these guys before. the seven sigvasson, lots they're of them. the brothers of Gunnar's mom. Uh-huh. Now, the oldest brother, Thrain, attends the
1: wedding with his wife, Thorhild the Poetess. But at the wedding feast, Thrain can't take his eyes off a beautiful young woman who's tall. And she's very, very young, by the way. And she's got long, blonde hair. and She's quite lovely. That sounds like Holgirth. Sure, but remember, a lot of years have already passed at this point in the saga. And this is mm-hmm. Thorgerd, Halgerth's daughter, from her second marriage, who's now in her early teens. Uh, see, time flies when you're in a saga. Well, yeah, it does. And the immediate problem is that Thrain's wife, Thorhild, notices that her husband's drunkenly leering at this very young <laughs> Thorgird, and uh-huh. in true poetous fashion, she composes a short verse on the subject that goes a little bit like this. Thrain, this gaping's not good. Your eyes are all agog. Yeah, it's not much of a poem in translation. <laughs> no, it's but not. But it's, it's
0: stylistically metrical. <laughs> Which is good. Well, the quality of the poem isn't really the problem. I'm sure... No, the problem gets- is that we've got a Humbert Humbert in our saga suddenly. <laughs> yes,
2: we do.
1: Now, Thrain <laughs> takes the opportunity, jumps over the table, and declares himself divorced on Thorhild. And within the hour, he's asking Holskold whether uh, his little granddaughter is available for marriage. Uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Even allowing for cultural differences, this is fairly creepy behavior. Oh, it is. It's really creepy. This is one of the few sections in this saga that makes me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But uh, aside from everything else, uh, this is the daughter of Thrain's nephew's wife. In other words, his own step-great-niece. Yeah. And
0: Thrain's been divorced for a matter of minutes.
2: Yeah, his wife. And the still cause there. of
0: his divorce <laughs> was that he was leering at this teenage girl. Uh, Yeah, and yet everyone involved
1: seems fairly okay with the situation. Gunnar (laughs) makes a point of checking in with both Thorgerd and Holgerth for their approval, but they offer no objections, and so Holgerth's daughter is now
0: her (laughs) (laughs) aunt-in-law. This is the sort of thing that makes trying to write out a family tree for this saga a nightmare. Yeah, what's the line you use for this one? Right, now to say this as clearly as possible... The daughter of Halgirth's second marriage is now married to the uncle of Halgirth's third husband. Yeah, I don't know what you just said. That's so confusing, but uh, okay. Yeah, ugh. It's just, it's gross. So what What about the second problem? Uh, well, this is by far the more famous of the two events. Uh, yes. The winter following their marriage, Gunnar and Halgirth attend a Yule festivity at Njal and Bergthor's farm. Njal's son Helgi is late to the party with his wife Thorhalla. And when they arrive, Bergthora tells Halgerth to move down to make room for Thorhall at the table. Uh, to put it briefly, words are exchanged, and Bergthora and Halgerth both end up hating one another as a result. Le- oh, come on now. We can't make it that brief. For starters, <laughs> this is a huge moment in the saga, and it sets up everything else we're going to talk about in this episode. So why would you? I know. I'm, I'm just giving us an overview to get us started. Uh- so the issue is that Halgerth doesn't want to move. Seating is important at these events, uh, partly for the comfort of being near the fire and away from the entrance to the hall, and partly because of status. And that's part of the issue. There's also Bergthor's behavior as hostess. That's fair enough. Uh, And some scholars, I think, have recently come to regard Bergthor's behavior here as unacceptably brusque. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the fact remains that it is her home, and she makes the rules. Holgerth would certainly claim the same privilege in her house. Yeah, but there are nice ways to say things, and Bergthor
1: mm-hmm. clearly doesn't like Halgrith. And, you know, frankly, I can't blame her. Mm-hmm. And and she's putting her in a no-win situation. Either suck up the insult to her status, or object and be
0: seen as a rude guest. Right. But, of course, Halgreth doesn't really care about being thought rude. And so when Bergthor returns to the table with a water bowl for guests to wash their hands, Halgreth grabs Thor's hand and says... There's not
1: much to choose between you and you You have gnarled nails
0: on every finger, and he's beardless. That's true, Bergthor says in response. But your husband Thorvald was not beardless, and yet you had him killed. Now, I have to say, that's about DEFCON 1 when it comes to insulting Holgerth. Yes. No one has ever proved that she was directly involved in Thorvald's death. Oh, she was, but, yeah. but it's true. No one has any real evidence about that. Mm-hmm. And Holger's insults to Bergthor aren't any nicer. Uh, we'll get to the beardless comment in a little while, but the comment about Bergthor's gnarled nails is generally read as a reference to this uh, folk belief that women with fungal infections of the nails were either nymphomaniacs or sexually abnormal in some way. So these two just have
1: declared war
0: on each other. It's it's
1: It's pretty yep. bad.
0: Yeah. And instead of involving himself in the fight... Gunnar just chooses to leave the party, telling Holgerth to save her quarreling for her servants rather than embarrassing them both in public. So now we have the setup for the next section of the
1: saga. Gunnar and Jal are refusing to intercede on their wives' behalves, and the wives are setting themselves up for a serious feud between their households. Right, and it doesn't take long for
0: that feud to kick off in earnest. Part 9 Bergthora and Holgerth go to war So I think the only way we're going to get through this is to just briefly explain the sequence of events in this feud before we try any kind of analysis. Okay. Um,
1: and if anybody wants analysis, just go to uh, William Ian Miller. He lays this whole thing out really nicely. <laughs> right. but, uh,
0: right. but you go ahead and explain in your own terms, John. Okay. Uh, so over the next few years, Holgerth and Bergthora are going to send multiple assassins after one another's workers and friends with escalating consequences. Yes. Their husbands are going to be working to keep their friendship from being torn apart by their wives' feud. How's that? Pretty good. And I think William Ian
1: Miller's argument is that this is a perfect setup for a feud. Um, mm-hmm. almost too perfect. But,
0: uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, let's give a little bit more detail than that, if we could. Okay. Uh, you can help me out with the Njal and Gunnar side of things. All right, I will. So among the ways that Njal and Gunnar tie their fortunes together is a woodland at Ralviskritha the that they own jointly. Each is in the habit of taking wood for his household's needs without having to check with the other. Yeah, this
1: is also a really nicely secluded spot for any sneaking about and assassinating type behavior.
0: Mm, yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> and when Bergthora sends a servant named Svart to out to chop wood, Holgirth hears rumors that Svart is out alone at Ralthasgritha. She pretends to be outraged that wood is being taken without permission. And she has a foreman, Cole, who's described simply as... The worst sort of person. And she (laughs) sends him into the woods where he attacks and kills Svart. I'm thinking people named Cole in the sagas are people to
1: avoid. You know? (laughs) Anyway, so it begins. Njal and Gunnar are away at the all thing when they learn about this killing. And they immediately make a settlement. Gunnar gives Njal self-judgment over the killing. And Njal sets a fine of 12 ounces of silver. uh, With the stipulation that Gunnar won't ask for more than that... If something happens from my side
0: which you have to judge. Right. In other words, they both know this isn't over. Oh yeah. Uh, and sure enough, Bergthora hires on a new worker, Otley of the East Fjords. Otley admits he's got a temper, which is fine, because Bergthora's barely bothering to hide what he has got in mind. And there's a great detail about Otley's time at the farm. It says Scarpe then took a liking to Otley. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you can't help but suspect that Skarpathen knows and approves of Otley's purpose. Oh, yes. And of course he's right. As soon as Njal and their sons ride to the thing the following summer, Bergthor sends Otley out on a mission to hunt down Holgirth's servant, Cole. He kills Cole and then sends a message to Holgirth that it might occur to her that Cole did not die by accident.
1: Yeah, there's a fair amount of taunting going back and forth here. Mm-hmm. When the Njalsons hear about this second killing, the only one to comment is Skarpathen. Slaves are
0: much more active than they used to be. (laughs) Said with his trademark demonic grin, no doubt. Uh, uh, Seriously, he's got like, he's got an overbite and an ugly mouth, and that's the voice you're gonna give him? What am I saying? Slaves are (laughs) much
1: much more active than they used to be. Anyway, go on. Uh, yeah, of course. But uh, Njol ignores him. Uh, and, and when he and Gunnar meet, Gunnar is given self-judgment, asks for 12 ounces of silver, and mm-hmm. Njol returns the same exact pouch unopened that Gunnar had given him last year. That's a nice touch. Uh, we'll get back to that. Yeah, and that settles
0: the problem for at least another year. Well, for another all-thing, anyway. Yeah. But it's not long before Holgerth sends for her relative, Bryndjolf the Brawler.
1: <laughs> that That's an inauspicious name. Yeah, unless you're rooting for the body count for the saga, I guess, uh, that's... Oh, uh, yeah. Uh,
0: meanwhile, Njal warns Otli to leave the farm, but Atli declares his loyalty to Njal's family. In return, Njal promises to value him highly if he's killed. I should say when he's killed. <laughs> right, Njal knows. <laughs> and notes that Birdthora would demand blood
1: vengeance for him in any case. Which is true, but not all that impressive. I mean, everyone's getting paid for with blood vengeance around here, and the sequence right, just goes true. on and on.
0: Uh, and sure enough, uh, Brynjolf kills Otli the following summer, mm-hmm. And as usual, Halgirth sends a taunting message to Bergthora about it. And this time at the All Thing,
1: everyone's a little bit more tense. There are mm-hmm. rising tensions. Njal wants to resolve things peacefully, but he warns Gunnar that he won't value Otli at a low amount. But Gunnar, mm-hmm. being the good man that he is, still gives himself judgment and when Njal asks for 100 ounces of silver, Gunnar pays it on the spot without question. Right, now that's not small change. No, and Njal and makes an attempt to end this cycle of violence by refusing to take on any new help for his farm that year, choking off Bergthor's supply of
0: killers. Oh, Bergthor is hardly the sort to let a little thing like that stop her. Uh, once Njal leaves for the all thing again, she just recruits her next agent from within the existing members of the household. She chooses Thord Freeman's son who had been foster father to the Njalsons. Yeah. And this is the part where she's really more of like the harsh soap.
1: Um, she's not quite the gentle <laughs>
2: soap,
1: right? Um, right? But, you know, we're definitely getting into people with a real value to the family now. That's kind of the point, Absolutely. the progression of a feud.
0: Right. And Thor's a different breed than the women have been sending up till now. Uh, for starters, he rides right to Holger's door and announces his intention to kill Brynjolf. Well, not, not exactly. I'd say so. I mean, he asks Holgerth where Brynjolf is, and says, "I want him to show me where he covered up Otley's body. I'm told he did a bad job of it." Well, no. Oh, okay. I mean, I guess,
1: <laughs> I guess that this is pretty much announcing your intention. You're right when you read it that way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. But but Holger's not impressed. She responds, "You're no killer, and nothing will happen if you two meet." Thord – really? That's the <laughs> well, she smokes. I'm
0: assuming she smokes well, a lot. I see. I see. So that, that happened suddenly. Well, the trips to uh, New, New World, cigarettes. You know. Thord does find Brynjolf and gives him fair warning as well. But even though Brynjolf's on his guard, Thord manages to kill him with an axe blow to the chest.
1: And when word of this killing gets to Njall at the all thing, he has to have it repeated to him
0: three times. And then he says, more men than I expected have now become killers. And this is an entirely new level of escalation. Bergthora and Holgerth have now involved relatives and close friends of the family. And now one of Holgerth's relatives is dead.
1: But one more time, Gunnar and Njal are able to restore the peace between their houses when Gunnar judges Brynjolf's worth at the same hundred pieces of silver that was paid for Adli.
0: Mm -hmm. And the question is whether that's a miscalculation. Mm -hmm. It maintains the symmetry that Njal and Gunnar have been using to keep things simple— But it creates another opening for Haldrith. Yes, it does. She objects to her relative being valued no higher than a paid laborer like Otley. Mm -hmm. And legally speaking, she might have a point. But does it matter?
1: I mean, this is clearly not a feud that's going to stop because of well-crafted legal settlements.
0: That's true enough.
1: But but there is a bit of a lull since Haldrith has to find someone that's going to take the task of killing Thord. And that's not easy, especially because Thord is an
0: important guy. Right. And he's no slouch at fighting. Uh, But on top of that, there's his status as foster father to the Njalsons. Uh, Foster parenting was taken very seriously. Uh, Again, remember that Njal has chosen a foster son as his protege and professional heir.
1: And anyone who manages to kill Thord is calling down a storm of rage from the
0: Njalsons themselves. Yep. So we're moving beyond servants here. And we haven't seen the boys in action yet, but they've apparently got a reputation already. When Halgrith tries to convince her uncle-in-law slash son-in-law, Rain <laughs> Sigfusen, to kill Thord, he says, that slaying would soon be swiftly avenged. But uh, she's still able to
1: put together a group of three men to try and kill Thord. There's Sigmund Lambason, a cousin of Gunnar's mother who likes Halgrith's style, and who wouldn't. <laughs> There's Sigmund's friend Skjold the Swede, described as a vicious man, and there's also Thrain Sigvason, who agrees to come along, but refuses to actually
0: take part in the attack. So I don't know how useful he is. Right. Right. Well, there are some machinations involved in getting Thord alone, but they're finally able to corner him. Yeah. Uh, Thord tries to challenge them to a series of one-on-one duels to improve his odds, but unsurprisingly, they refuse. Well, it's worth a try. Yeah, I guess. Uh, and then as the fight begins, Thord's last words are, Scarpaven will avenge me. The fight takes a while,
1: but Thord's outnumbered and outmatched. He's killed by Sigmund with skjöld's help, and word of the death soon reaches Gunnar, who has to report the killing to Njal.
0: Not a good situation right. no. to be in. No, and for the first time, Njal is silent after receiving news of a killing. Yes. And it's not clear at first that he'll follow through with their usual plan of friendship trumping their wives' feud. Remember, Thord is a friend of his as well. Yes. Uh... But he eventually agrees to settle Thord's value at 200 ounces of silver, and he carefully avoids his sons knowing about the death until after it's been settled. They will not break the settlement that I make, but if they were here, they wouldn't make it easy.
1: And that's not all. When Njal does tell his sons of Thord's death, Skarpadin warns his father that this is the last time that he's going to put up with settlement in money. And Njal mm. agrees not to ask them to restrain themselves again.
0: Yeah, that is ominous. Very and we know there's undoubtedly more trouble to come. Uh, as that quick run-through shows, there's a highly systematic formula to the feud between Holgarth and Bergthora, with each insult or killing providing the occasion for the next. Yes, and all the introductions
1: to Njals saga point this pattern out. In other words, they're feuding according to the rules
0: of a standard feud. Sure. In fact, they're almost feuding too much according to the rules. Yes. Uh, so that to some people it reads as... Self-consciously constructed to the point of becoming comic. Hmm. Uh, That's Anderson's analysis, and I think he's on to something here. I'm not sure about the comic part, but it's definitely trying to drive its point home. This saga is usually so well-written, and it can be subtle when it wants to be. This is not subtle. No,
1: especially once we get to the point about pouches of silver and the routine of each killer becoming
0: the next victim. Right, no, it's absolutely true. It's, It's sort of like, Hey! Want a job? It comes with good news and bad news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the job? Well, you have to go kill someone on my neighbor's farm. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. What's the bad news? Well, you'll have to be killed off for narrative symmetry. <laughs> oh, okay. What's the good news? I'll avenge your death next year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's really, there's no effort being made to disguise the formulaic nature of the sequence. Yeah, it's actually highlighting the formula. Yeah, I agree. But it seems to me that that's only part of the story. Hmm. There's also the matter of agency here. No one seems to have any real way of stopping these two from perpetuating these killings. And yet settlements are made
1: for each killing, and they're being made publicly. I mean, the point being to bring an end to the cycle of violence, or at least presumably so.
0: Right. But the men and women are operating in sort of parallel but unconnected frames of reference. Hologrith and Bergthor's feud can't penetrate the peace between Njal and Gunnar... But the legal settlements made by the men are irrelevant to the women, who cannot participate in feud law anyway and wouldn't even if they could. They prefer blood vengeance. And the highly structured nature of this section seems to lay all of that out neatly.
1: Each pair rides on its own rails, parallel but never really overlapping.
0: Yeah, I think that's a nice way of thinking about it. Uh, And what they're doing on those parallel tracks is interesting as well. Both men and women in this part of the saga, and elsewhere as well, seem almost to subvert the audience's assumptions about gender.
1: True. Yeah, there's a great point about this from O'Donoghue. She notes that when women in the saga accuse men of being effeminate for hesitating to take revenge, the insult is robbed of its meaning by the partial gender reversal that's taken place in the saga. As she says, if the men did behave like women, there would be swifter
0: vengeance and more corpses. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, for example, Hallrith and Bergthor aren't rejecting the legal settlements because of their inability to participate. They're rejecting or ignoring the settlements because they don't want those settlements to exist. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Njal and Gunnar are just as trapped within the constraints of legal resolution as their wives are locked out of the system. Well, they are if they keep within the boundaries of non-violent
1: resolution. They have the freedom to abandon that course at any time and become violent if they
0: choose. Well, sure, in theory they do. But they've staked a great deal on their ability to avoid that course. And once their friendship becomes the force they use to keep their settlements amicable, they really can't pursue another path without their friendship being a casualty of war. Yeah. And in a culture that idealizes male friendship, that's a trap. And everyone involved knows that. Uh,
1: there's a moment after the first killing of Svart where Njal and his sons return to the all thing, while Bergdor plots to kill Cole in retaliation. I mean, then sees Njal holding the bag of silver Gunnar has given him the year before and he says that pouch may turn out to be useful. Everyone knows that bergthor is going to seek revenge regardless of the deals struck
0: and the decisions made by the men. Right. And the fact that Njal has kept the payment in its bag for the year and has now brought it back to the Althing with him means that he knows too. Uh, but I don't think the point is to stop his wife or even to prevent future bloodshed. As you said earlier, the rules of this saga seem to suggest that women are the engines of feud. And in particular, there's no stopping these two women. Well, th- if that's so, then what do you think the point is? I think the point we're supposed to get from all this is that Njal and Gunnar's friendship is stronger than the violent feud of their households. Okay. But is it? I mean, it endures, but is it stronger
1: if the feud continues in spite of the friendship? At some point, it's got to break, right? Okay.
0: Well, I'll revise the wording. Their friendship cannot be broken by feud. Yeah, Really? Uh... It's a dramatic idealization of male homosocial friendship. Okay,
1: but, but now that, 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 that is something worth considering. I, I kind of like that idea. I think that's what
0: the saga author's going for. Now look at the ways that they're demonstrating their faith in one another. In the wake of all five killings we've talked about, the wronged party is given self-judgment. We've talked about self-judgment once, or twice before. It's a major factor in Ravenkill's saga, if you can remember that far back. <laughs> Uh, There are certainly times when a person abuses self-judgment. That's right. Uh, Once you give someone
1: else self-judgment in the case, you really can't say much about what they decide. Uh, Remember Mm -hmm. in Bonda Monataka, we saw old Ofeg. He used that to his advantage by bribing a member of the Confederation against him into accepting self-judgment, but then making a settlement favorable to Ofeg. Uh, Mm -hmm. Even the other plaintiffs in the case can't do anything once a
0: self-judgment has been granted to someone involved in the case. Right, exactly. Uh, Gunnar and Nal are putting their faith, their fortune, and even their legal status in the hands of a friend. That's not an empty gesture. It's a real risk. Andy, you've known me for about 15
1: years, right? I haven't been counting, but sure. And, and before you ask the next question, no, you can't decide how to settle any disagreements between <laughs> us. Whatever I do See? to your family. That's,
0: <laughs> that's a pretty reasonable answer. And you haven't even done anything wrong yet. Not yet. How, Honestly, how many people in your life would you really trust to protect your interests if someone in your family had killed someone in theirs? Well,
1: (laughs) wow. Uh, You know, if you put it like that, not a lot of people outside of my family.
0: Mm -hmm. Maybe Jason Eisler. Right. (laughs) Good old Jason Eisler. Yeah. Anybody can trust him. Uh, He has an honest face. That's exactly (laughs) what Gunnar and Yal are doing here. They're, they both prove worthy of the other's trust repeatedly and in the face of extreme provocation. And that purse is a nice touch. The fact
1: that each round of killings is paid with the exact same price with Njal going first each time means that they're not just trusting one another to be reasonable. They, they both operate with the implicit faith that the other will be totally even-handed in dealing with the other.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they're approaching a point where Njal will no longer be able to keep his family in check. His sons have a legitimate grievance of their own due to their foster father Thord's death. Yeah. And it's only respect for their father's word that held them back from taking blood vengeance right away. Yeah, but then has put his father on notice that he won't consider himself
1: limited by his father's word again. And so he's just warned y'all not to make another settlement if anything more happens.
0: Right. But hey, what could happen? <laughs> <laughs> Part 10. Old beardless.
1: So, at this point in the story, there's a brief lull. Gunnar puts the fear of God into Sigmund and warns him never to listen to Holgerth again, which is smart advice.
0: Well, he puts the fear of Gunnar into him, which is just as bad.
1: (laughs) and, And for a time, everyone behaves themselves. But soon a pair of traveling women stop at Gunnar's farm, Hlidrendi, and Holgerth learns that they recently visited Njal's farm. She gets them to say various nasty things about Nyall and his sons, and when the women mention that Nyall had a servant bringing dung to manure the fields, she says, "Nyall's wisdom is uneven. Although he
0: has advice on everything, he didn't cart dung to his chin so he could grow a beard like other men. And there it is. Uh, Nyall's beardlessness at this point becomes a matter for public discussion. And everyone with Holgerth, including Sigmund, is delighted by the joke. She says... Let's call him Old Beardless and his sons Dungbeardlings. Mm-hmm. And you, Sigmund, make up a poem about
1: this. Now, this is one of the best examples in the sagas of a defamation. We saw a bit of this in other sagas like uh, Bjorn saga, but, but this is a classic case. Speaking lies against another person was a serious offense. There there could be legal as well as
0: violent consequences for publicly mocking your enemies. Right, and what Sigmund is creating here is a nidwieser, a shaming verse. Right. It's one of the types of defamation listed as a killing offense in the medieval laws of Iceland. Which means that if word gets out of what Sigmund said, Njal and his sons would be
1: legally justified in attacking him.
0: Absolutely. In this case, though, an even bigger problem for them is that Holgerth creates uncertainty about Njal's face and its meaning. So njal has got no hair on his uh, chinny-chin-chin? Chin? Hmm? That's almost the worst way you could choose to explain that, but yes.
1: Well, okay. Sorry.
0: So, he, he's he got no beard. Is that better? You like that? No. He, he. Nor has he got a lax attitude toward house-building materials or a fear of strong longed wolves. <laughs> well,
1: there you go. No, I, I guess that's pretty straightforward. And uh, one of the really interesting parts of this for me is that uh, it's only at this point that a modern reader catches on that every other man in the
0: saga has a beard. Yeah. It's so much a part of an adult male's physical self that it's not usually mentioned, Uh, right? just as you wouldn't describe someone as having two ears and a nose. But you would probably, it would come up at some point if one of those was missing. Yeah, uh, but aside from the missing beard, Njal's a normal-looking person, and he's even considered a handsome one. Right. Uh, The problem is that once it's been raised as a possibility, the issue of how to interpret Njal's appearance can't be ignored. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be seeing tensions rising between those who want to inscribe effeminacy on Njal. That is, those who would see him as the unmanned Njal Skeglaus, or beardless. And those who insist that Njal's masculine identity and his ability to function as a sexually heteronormative male aren't affected by his hairless face.
1: Yeah, and these confrontations are going to drive a great deal of the action of the saga. And as we move forward, they're going to get a lot bloodier and more dangerous each time.
0: Right. Uh, Armand Jakobsen and Carl Phelps have done really interesting work on the ways that beardlessness could be inscribed as a marker of diminished or absent masculinity. Uh, we'll throw information about those articles up on the site if anybody wants to read more about it. And you've written about this too, haven't you? Yeah, but for more of a disability studies angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more interested in the ways that demasculinizing Nyal codes him as disabled. Okay, uh, There's an obvious correlation being made between beard growth and and mature heterosexual masculinity, which links to the association of the male reproductive organs and heterosexual activity with the man's body and worth as an integrated whole.
2: Nice.
1: Well, we can stick that article up on the website as well if you want me to. Uh, the point is that there there's
0: a lot tied up in this attempt to give me all a nickname. Absolutely. Uh, so she calls him beardless. That might imply a judgment of sexual deviancy or sexual passivity. Hmm. It might cast doubt on Bergthor's fidelity, since she's producing bearded sons while married to a man who, Holgerth suggests, might not be physiologically capable of fathering children. And that leads to further implications about the uncertain parentage of Njal's children, or their practice of smearing crap on their face to mask their own beardlessness <laughs> and impotence. And that also
1: means that Holgerth has now expanded her attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't a one-on-one war of
0: attrition with bergthor anymore. She's declared a Game of Honor war on the whole family. Exactly. Now we'll be getting into the questions surrounding masculinity in more detail in our next episode, but this is really the moment where the question of masculine identity and manly qualities is first brought to the forefront of the narrative. So, getting back to the story, Sigmund agrees to make
1: poetic verses about Njal and his sons in which he names them Old Beardless and the Dung Beardlings. Mm. And we're told that everyone present is laughing at these verses, and that includes Thrain Sigfarsson and his wife Thorgird, as well as the traveling women. Right. The only people who don't hear the verses are, well, us. The author doesn't actually include them in the saga. Which is very disappointing, but uh, but I guess it's a good move narratively. We're able to imagine how vicious this poem mm-hmm. is, which is always going to be worse than knowing the actual words.
0: I think it is, but it also serves as a kind of meta-commentary on the verses. Right? Hmm. Even the saga author refuses to repeat them. Hmm. Uh we're just supposed to understand that like a dish of rotten electric eels, the poem is in shockingly bad taste. Uh speaking of bad taste, you uh you proud of yourself for that one? A little
1: bit. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm embarrassed for you, uh on your <laughs> behalf. <laughs> anyway, so uh while Hogarth is enjoying her jokes at Njal and his son's expenses, uh Gunnar bursts into the room and he's heard everything and he's very angry. And you wouldn't like him when he's angry. I'm ignoring that. Oh, come on. After what you just did? Give me a break. <laughs> now, now uh, Gunnar flat out tells Sigmund that he's a dead man for having composed the verses. And then he says, And if any man here repeats these words, he'll be sent away and bear my anger besides. And then he walks out. Right. Now, we've never really seen Gunnar angry before this moment.
0: And it's terrifying.
1: Yeah, it is terrifying. And no one dares to speak, not even Holgerth. And, and we should point out that this ban on the poetry works. No one will repeat Sigmund's mm-hmm. verses while Gunnar's
0: still alive. Right Now, what's interesting to me is that Gunnar's not just worried about how the Njalsons will react to the insult. Right, right. He, he's already told Sigmund that yeah. he's a dead man walking, so he
1: clearly knows right. they're going to react violently, which makes sense since Scarpe then already told his father as
0: much. Sure. Uh, but Gunnar's behavior suggests that he's fully aware of those deeper problems about Njals' manhood we talked about. He doesn't bother to argue against what's been said. He orders a stop to the debate itself. And he warns that he'll consider anyone who reopens the discussion one of his enemies. Right. But of course, with that many people in the room, rumors of the insults get around, even if the verses themselves don't. And when Bergthora hears about it, she immediately goads her sons about them. Gifts have been given you all, father and sons. And you're not real men unless you repay them.
2: And then Scarphaedon says, We aren't made like women, that we become furious over everything.
0: Mm
1: but uh, that could be a bit of bluster on his mm-hmm. part. He breaks out in a sweat as he speaks and then flushes in anger. Grim's also visibly angry, and Hoskold steps outside with Bergthora for more details, which might be a little suspicious. Only Helgi remains outwardly calm. Outwardly? Mm-hmm. Right. That, that night, uh, Njal wakes up when he hears an axe scraping against the wall, and when he looks outside, he sees his four sons fully armed and walking in the
0: direction of Gunnar's farm, and then he calls out to them, Where are you going, Skarpathen? To look for your sheep. You wouldn't be armed for that, so it must be something else. Uh, We're going salmon fishing Father. if we don't find the sheep. Ah. Then it would be a good thing if they didn't slip away. And he returns to bed. So, to me, it sounds like Njal's openly approving of their mission here. Well, that's hard to say. I mean, he's certainly not objecting to it. But, of course, he already promised he wouldn't. And he knows better than anyone that, legally, what Sigmund's done is as provocative as another killing. Okay, I mean, that's all
1: true, but Njal's not just a legal savant. He's also an Icelandic man whose family's been insulted and provoked a number of times now. Mm -hmm. And his sons now have a legally impeccable reason to take blood vengeance on the man who killed Njal's friend Thord. Njal might not want to violate his friendship with Gunnar or the settlements they've made, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean he's not open to the idea of revenge if it can be achieved without insulting Gunnar.
0: No, that's absolutely true. And the author plays his cards close to the vest here. We're really not sure at this moment how Njal feels about what his sons are up to. Bergthor, on the other hand, is delighted. <laughs> I will give them all my thanks if they tell me of the slaying of Sigmund.
1: And meanwhile, the Njallsons make their way to Gunnar's farm at Lidrendi. Mm. When they spot Sigmund and Skjold working with horses away from the house, they spring into action.
0: Well, they do, but first we see Scarpe then really taking charge of the group. Uh, for one thing, he orders Hoskald to stay out of the fight since he's often not with the other brothers and would be the most exposed to retaliation. Right, which is good thinking. Uh, remember,
1: Hoskold is Njall's illegitimate son, mm-hmm. and presumably he travels independently of the others to and from the
0: family farmstead. Right, and Scarpaven claims Sigmund for himself, as he says, that's a man's work, and orders Grimm and Helby to double up on Skjold the Swede. Okay, now can we finally get to the fight? Sure. Uh, Sigmund and Scarpaven have a hell of a brawl, Uh, With Scarpathan smashing Sigmund's shield to bits, while Sigmund tries various weapons to cut through Scarpathan's defenses. After a few furious exchanges, Scarpathan manages to disarm Sigmund, and then buries an axe in his shoulder, forcing Sigmund down to his knees. And to give Sigmund credit, he gets back onto his feet,
1: which is incredibly impressive. Mm -hmm. But Scarpathan just sneers at him. You bowed to me just now, and you'll fall into your mother's embrace before we're through. And that's presumably a reference to Mother Earth, or to Sigmund's dead mother, maybe? I don't know. Is Sigmund's mother dead, John? I don't
0: know. I think it's probably the Mother Earth reference, although it's been read as a sexual joke. Mm. Uh, Skarpathen responding to Sigmund's verses about sexual inadequacy of the Njalsons by threatening to sexually dominate him. What? Come on. Well, anyway, Sigmund's response
1: is simply to say, that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) And then Skarpathen kills him with a blow to
0: the head. (laughs) I don't know why that makes me laugh, but it does. (laughs) Because you're Uh, sick. Meanwhile, Grimm and Helgi chop down Skuld, which might be more impressive if we knew anything about him at all. Uh, As it is, this is really a show. And he's not done showboating
1: just yet. He chops off Sigmund's head, flags down one of Holgerth's servants, and gives him the head, saying,
0: Take this to Holgerth. She'll know whether this is the head that spoke slanderous verses about us. That is a very satisfying bit. Yes. Uh, we're used to this whole cutting heads off corpses to taunt people motif as being something that bad people do. Right? We saw the villains do this in Grettir's saga and in Bjorn the Hitter Doll Champion's saga. True, and uh, we do see justified
1: decapitations as well. Uh, remember the random head trophy in Henthor's saga? Oh, sure. You know, now that I think about it, a surprising number of people with sagas named after them end up with their heads chopped off. <laughs> well, there's a stat we should be counting. A head count? Ah, well, you know we wouldn't call it that. It's just a bad joke. Maybe uh, a behead count would uh, be more like it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> behead count. <laughs> anyway,
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway the the servant uh, the servant waits until the Nyallsens leave, then drops the head and runs home to tell Hogarth. Uh, I guess he doesn't have the gumption to take the head with him. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of. Typically for her, her only reaction is to be annoyed that the servant dropped the head, so that she can't use it to goad Gunnar into revenge. <laughs> what
0: a woman. She really is something. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, the Njalsons return home. When they tell their father what they've done, he drops his pretense of cool neutrality. Mm. Bless your hands. This time, there will be no self-judgment. So Njal's willing to finally stand against Gunnar? I don't think so. Uh, Gunnar has already washed his hands of Sigmund, and it's entirely possible that Njal either knows or suspects that.
1: It, well, it's possible, but it, it could be that Njalson is just counting on Gunnar's sense of fair play and friendship here. I mean, after all, Sigmund's actions were essentially the legal equivalent of a physical attack, and this put him
0: out of bounds for compensation. And he's right to trust Gunnar here. Uh, when he hears of the killing, Gunnar's only comment is, Sigmund should have expected something like this, for evil designs have evil results. And that's the last word on the subject. He never brings any legal action over Sigmund's death.
1: Mm. Well, that's not to say that there's no effect on the friendship with Njal, though. I mean, Three years are going to pass before Gunnar consults Njal over a legal matter at the Thing.
0: But we should be clear that that's all that's said, is that nothing happens at the all things. It's not said that they avoid one another's company entirely. They're just being careful about creating a situation where it might be expected that Sigmund's case would come up. Maybe, but it's quite possible
1: that relations between them have cooled to the point that their interactions, if there are any, would be limited to casual exchanges. Now, I think that Gunnar is no longer in a position to ask advice from Njal, nor nor is Njal in a position to offer advice for a while. And remember that Njal said at the very beginning that their relationship would be mm-hmm. tested. And this is a good mm-hmm. example of that. The fact that Gunnar comes seeking advice after three whole years suggests that Gunnar has passed the test, even if it took
0: three years. Well, whatever the silence between them has been, Gunnar coming to Njal for advice gives Njal the chance to smooth things over. Yes. As Gunnar gets up to leave, Njal takes him by the arm and mentions that Sigmund has gone uncompensated for a long time. And although Gunnar resists the offer at first, he acknowledges that an offer would be welcome.
1: And now we see the two of them really emphasizing their friendship all over again. Mm -hmm. Njal insists that Gunnar name the price, and Gunnar sets it at 200 ounces of silver, which means that they're exactly even again financially for all the settlements over their wives' feud. Right. And Njal
0: offering the settlement allows Gunnar to clear the air publicly about what happened. And so, when the deal is announced at a local thing, Gunnar makes a speech about how fairly Njal and his sons have acted in all this, and that Sigmund's verses meant that he deserved what happened to him. Mm -hmm. And he says again that anyone, anyone who repeats Sigmund's poem, will die without the right to compensation. Which is a little rich, given that Gunnar's just pocketed 200 silver in compensation for (laughs) Sigmund's death. Uh, yeah, but Gunnar never sought that settlement. That's true. It's being presented as Njal's fair-mindedness and generosity, not Gunnar's pursuit of a legal right. True. So so ultimately, this is another way of performing friendship. Absolutely it is. Yeah. And this section of the saga ends with the heartwarming pronouncement that they said that no matter would ever arise that they would not settle by themselves. Aww. They stood by this and always remained
1: friends. That is so sweet. I wonder if Njol and Gunnar wrote BFFs forever in each other's yearbook. Yeah. It'd be a rare happy ending <laughs> if the saga ended here. Uh, of course the saga doesn't end there. We're just getting started, actually, and things are about to get a little darker <laughs> and a whole lot bloodier for Gunnar
2: and Njol. Uh-huh.
0: But that's a story for our next episode. For now, you can let us know what you thought of Holograth and Bergthor's feud or any part of this episode. You can reach us through Twitter, where we're at Saga Thing Pod, or Facebook, where we're Saga Thing Podcast. Or you can visit our blog
1: at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, where we'll continue providing bibliographies for these episodes,
0: along with with any other tidbits we might come up with or things you send us. Yeah, nothing says I approve of your taste in medieval literature like a T-shirt. Well, that's all for this time.
1: As always, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll be back soon with another exciting episode of No
0: Saga. Bye for now.
1: You okay there? You alright, honey? Well, you know, this you is right, very honey? strong beer. <laughs> <laughs>